0: G'day, I'm Ollie Laleave and welcome to GRDC in Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across southern Australia for this series, and we'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys Learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. This week I'm sitting down with Haram Van Rees, and the conversation Haram and I had, we were able to explore things, take a little bit more time, and maybe sit back and look at. just agriculture, but life more broadly through the lens that Haram has lived it through. In 2020, he received the Southern Region Recognising and Rewarding Excellence Award. On this episode of GRDC In Conversation, we delve into all the things that Haram has done in his life to get him to where he is, and what he's done since. His story starts as a young fella in the Netherlands, where he was raised until he was about 14, but with his dad getting a job in Australia, it was time to pack up and head across. At the age of about 17 or 18, Harram convinced his mother that he'd stay in Australia and finish school. Well, I'll tell you, this bloke could negotiate because once he finished school, he headed off overseas on a three-year gap year and has seen more of the world than so many other people. In his chat, he talks about some of the experiences that he had there and how they've come into play in his life over the years since. Haram studied, an undergraduate in science and biochemistry. It took him all around the world. When he got back to Australia, he headed up to the Alpine country to study cattle grazing on Mount Bogong. This story is only just the tip of the iceberg of him getting involved in agriculture and his passion for soil conservation, no-till farming, everything to do with Australian cropping has just evolved since. So, as you're going to hear, we hear an incredible story of life's journey and travels and getting richer through experiences and how that has shaped him into being such an influential person in Australian agriculture and the grains industry.
1: I mean, um, the, our, my career in agriculture has been so fantastic that, I mean, it just, yeah, it, look, I've only got good memories. I can't think of, I mean, of course there is things that happen that you think, oh, I could have done better. But really as a, as a career, I've been very fortunate, I think.
0: Oh, I'm looking forward to the chat then. And I think it's the one thing I absolutely love about these chats and conversations is you get the chance to get an insight and kind of reflect on people's lives and what they've done and how different things have influenced the journey they've taken. Yeah, true. My first question I've got for you though, is Haram is definitely not a very common name. So you mentioned it was Dutch, but did you grow
1: up in Europe? Yeah, So I was, I was born in Holland and when I was 14, we moved as a family to Melbourne because my dad was, he was an engineer and he was working in Australia on the contract. So I was 14 and when I was 18 and in the last year of high school, they left Australia to go back to Europe. They went to England for dad's work. And I begged my mum if I was allowed to stay in Australia. And she, luckily for me, she agreed that I could finish my high school in, in Australia because I really didn't, well, I had all my friends here and School was going okay and had a, my life was here and luckily mum let me stay and I became an Australian and they traveled to many other parts of the world after that. So hmm, that's how it started. That's a
0: huge decision as an 18 year old. Were you just thinking it was going to be one hell of an adventure and just fun with
1: your mates? Yeah, well my, I was still, I was just in the final year of school and you know, you have your friends and everything else, and it's well. Your life is obviously not mapped out for you, but to go and move when you're 18 in the final year of school to go to England, I, I asked if I could stay, and and that worked out really well. So
0: you, that's the school part and allowed to stay. But what about studying in university? You managed to talk your mother into that as well.
1: Well, by then I guess you're an adult when you finish school, so. Whether, I mean, mum obviously expected me to, to follow the family, but in reality, once you go to university, I mean, you you move out of home anyway. And whether home was in Melbourne or for them in, in England, I mean, you, we saw each other over the next 20 or 30 years, we would have seen each other, well, the rest of my family, almost yearly because I'd had, my parents would come back to Australia for a holiday, or I would go over there. So, and they moved all over the world after that. And and quite often, while you're at, still at university, the company would pay for the children to come and visit their parents. So, so all of <laughs> you in Europe your... and Brazil and other countries <laughs> where Dad was working. So, what a bonus! I oh, know. Well, well all your mates at uni were probably saving up for that. European escapade, here you were, and you're like, oh, I guess I better go and see my parents. Too. <laughs> I better go and see them and, and <laughs> jump in the comedy camper and travel around Europe and drop in at Manchester to see my parents. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds perfect. What were you studying at uni here in Australia? Well, so I, I did my undergraduate degree in science in uh, biochemistry, and which I quite liked, but Straight after university, I took off and traveled around Europe and then came back and worked for a while, just doing, well, money earning work. So not necessarily in my chosen field, but then I traveled overseas for three years. So I went right through South America, Africa. As well as Europe, and so I was away for three years at that time and and that sort of was a really when besides being really interesting and delving into how people live in different parts of the world and what they do and how they actually live, it was a really well, it was a really great growing up experience, and I really enjoyed doing that, but then I also knew that when I came back life would really have to take a different avenue because you can't keep doing maybe you can keep maybe doing, you can. <laughs> but i felt i couldn't keep doing it forever so i came back to australia and i was lucky enough to apply to do a postgraduate degree at melbourne university and there was a contract to do that it was um cattle grazing in the Alps, in the Victorian Alpine area, because we still had cattle grazing up there at that time. And even though it's obviously not related to my undergraduate degree, but I found that a really fascinating topic and worked up in the Alps for four years and worked with the local cattleman. Also the Soil Conservation Authority did a lot of work up there. That was before the Wagong High Plains were a national park. And yeah, so we that was well, that was an amazing experience to spend every summer living up in the Alpine area, living in one of the cattlemen's huts, working out what cattle were doing up there, you know, doing in terms of environmental impact that they were having and then i wrote that up as my thesis and i had a fantastic time for four, four years and i got a phd out of it. Like, what <laughs> i really lucky really what i'm seeing
0: is a bit of a trend here and what i did want to ask you is it's been three years traveling the world and i'd love to know what were the perspectives and what were the ways that kind of different cultures around the world shaped you but then also similar to that, you came back to Australia and you're living in probably a very unique culture in terms of alongside cattlemen studying that. What did you learn from all these different experiences and what did they highlight for you?
1: Well, it, it, especially South America, well, South American Africa, I mean, the, the hardship that people live in, live under, in different parts of the world is, is a pretty amazing. I mean, Africa can be very confronting when you're just traveling overland. And I mean, we, we didn't have a lot of money in those days, so you travel in the back of trucks and however you could get to the next destination, and you get to see a lot of how everyday people live. And maybe at that time, maybe you're not thinking about that so much, but certainly on reflection, you're seeing what people are doing, how they're living, they're living from day to day, and it's hardship for them and their and their crop production well their production systems because most of those people that you meet and travel around are smallholder farmers, so they you know they they grow their own little bit of sorghum or whatever they're growing, and maize and and other crops, especially in Africa. and it's very difficult and and that has an impact on you, even though you may not be thinking about that as a as a world view, but at the same time, when you're at that age, you experience that, and, and it wasn't always easy going. I mean, sitting on the back of a truck for 24 hours going through the middle of Sudan can be a bit challenging, and, and it wasn't always safe either. I remember sleeping outside police stations quite often, just on the on the doorstep and because you weren't allowed to sleep inside, but at least you felt a little bit more comfortable, you know, where you were sleeping because, you know, th- some of those spaces were challenging and, but what an amazing experience when you were young and to be able to do that. So, what an absolutely amazing experience. So th- there were some
0: really early influences around agriculture and I guess that's the, the beauty of perspective and exposure to the different world, but Coming back to Australia, working on the High Plains and the the choice of your PhD, looking at the impact of cattle on the Bogong High Plains, did this really ignite that fire around agriculture?
1: Yeah, it did. And, well, it was done through the Agriculture Department at Melbourne University as well. And so I had a lot of, I was then getting a lot of influence from other lecturers and other students who were working more in traditional agriculture rather than what I was doing on the Bogan pipelines. But in relation to what had, was happening on the that so the cattlemen were obviously really concerned about losing their leases, and which eventually they did when it became a national park and, and they weren't allowed to graze cattle up there anymore. And then only a few years ago, I went back there, and I must say I was pretty horrified because even though there were no cattle, there were heaps and heaps of wild horses, brumbies up there, and deer. And I'm not sure that the Bagram hopelands, I mean, they probably are in the slightly better position or, yeah, environmentally than what they were when the cattle were up there, but there's a huge amount of damage being done by the Brumbies and and deer, and there is no movement at all to get rid of those feral animals. And and I know that Brumbies have an Australian contact with the man from Snow River and everything else, but ultimately up there, they cause as much damage as what the cattle were doing. And so, I mean, that's when you get that perspective in life I guess when you get older, where you get the dichotomy between different views and and people are had really adhered to those views, and they're very strong. so you know there was this very strong lobby to get rid of the cattle up there. But that same lobby group aren't complaining about the deer or about the the brumbies, and you think, well, I mean that's not. Is that how society works, or is that a compromise that we all have to accept? So, I mean, but that you get those opinions and those, or well, that that those concepts come later in life when you look back and you look at you know, what's actually happened over that time period and how people behave in relation to current issues. That exists all around the place. and 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 that leads us into my agricultural career too, because there's lots of issues there as well, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But that's, and they all become reflective as you get older. you can look back and see what's actually happening and when I mean, you can't see what's going to happen in the future, but you've got some idea. yeah, and well, I think that's where like
0: learning from the past is so important, isn't it? Because at any point in time when these decisions are made, there are trade-offs which are considered, but it, it's actually going, well, at the point where that decision's made, have we made sure that there is enough information there so people can make an informed decision, whether it's for, for their own personal, I guess, agenda of what food they want to eat or whatever it might be in terms of bigger societal kind of decisions as well. Hmm. So... You finished on the high plains and, and and can we say now that this, this was the stage where you were growing up or you'd,
1: (laughs) maybe I was a little bit of a late developer, (laughs) yeah, I spent too much time traveling around the world. So I was, I was getting into my early thirties by then, and then straight after the high plains. So after I was awarded my PhD, I got, I started work with the soil conservation authority and that quickly moved from the damage that was being done up in the Wagon High Plains in terms of water catchment into a position in the Soil Conservation Authority in Bendigo where I started working on no-till farming because no-till farming was just starting to take off then. And the Soil Conservation Authority in Victoria was always working on soil erosion mitigation and especially in cropping country, in the Mallee and the Wimmera. And so that's how I started work in the cropping industry because I was working with farmers looking at no-till and how that was actually working for them and improvements in, in production systems. And then it didn't take long to starting feeling Uncomfortable in the public sector, and I thought it's high time to jump out of this and start working for ourselves. So, my partner Ann and I decided to set up our own consulting business. So, I became a cropping consultant, and lo and behold, that's exactly the same time the Birchip Cropping Group started. And I already knew Ian McClellan and John Ferrier and some of those farmers that that were the instigators of the cropping group. And, well, I was working with them because I was doing their agronomy work at that stage. And then that would have been probably the most amazing thing in my life because here I had a research background and I really wanted to pursue the research side of crop production as well and the Birch of Cropping Group started so the synergy was amazing because it gave me this fantastic opportunity to do to work with farmers who were super enthusiastic about the production systems and doing the science behind it and so I was extremely lucky to be able to do that so that that was in 90 early 90s started the cropping group
0: was the decision easy to leave working for the government and go and establish your own business? Like did you have a number of clients which or potential clients you'd identified and thought this could be an easier jump?
1: Yeah, so I talked to quite a few farmers at that time and then but you know, working for the public sector really I mean, it's great for a lot of people, but for for us or for me, it's not something I really wanted to do. I mean, I like the the idea of challenging yourself and being out there and working with individual farmers. And so I set up our, well, we set up our business and it didn't take long. And we had 30 or 40 clients. We started employing people and still working with a cropping group. And, and that was a really great experience and, and what a great, and it's, I mean, like so many things in, in life. I mean, work is really important, but the people are even more important. So the people you're working with and spending social time with, that's really the critical issue.
0: What were some of the learnings you got from running your own business and a,
1: a team of people and a growing client base? <laughs> um, hard work <laughs> <laughs> and and having teenage children as well. Um, yeah, it was a huge amount of work, especially traveling. And, and you know, sometimes we talk about those early days and that's when mobile phones first came in and they were those brick phones you know, that you had to carry in a, in a bag. You had to drive a ute just to get them around, I hear? <laughs> yeah, not quite, but almost. Well, we had to have a ute anyway, otherwise you can't get around. <laughs> and then, I mean, they were... That was an amazing thing when mobile phones came out, because otherwise you spent the whole night on your telephone talking with your clients, and now I could do it from the car as well, and that made a big difference. But so, and that was all happening at the same time. So there was a, but yeah, to be honest, it it was never difficult financially. I mean, we always made enough money to live on and I loved working with those farmers, especially the, you know, the the no-till farmers and and most farmers would be developing into their no-till practices during the nineties. So, and that was a really fantastic experience.
0: What were some of the, the big issues? You mentioned the no-till farming piece before, but what were what some of the other big issues of the day?
1: Well, well no-till farmers requires an increase in the use of agrochemicals, so herbicides particularly. And at the same time, well, I was given another travel award some time ago, and the, this was in the early late 90s and already herbicide resistance had come into um, for some weeds into the cropping system especially in ryegrass and so that was in the late 90s and that was of a real concern and for that we traveled to Canada as well as into America and we talked with farmers over there about the challenges that they were having in their cropping systems in terms of, of herbicide resistance and those sort of things. So that's, yeah, that wasn't the start of setting up training schools through the Birdship Cropping Group where farmers came to Birdship. We'd set up all the trials in relation to using different herbicides and different chemistries and all those sort of things. And we talk, well, they had diagnostic schools. So they were training schools for farmers to better understand how to manage um, their herbicide program in relation to managing herbicide resistance and getting the best out of the, the weed control that they could. And those herbicide diagnostic schools were unbelievably popular. I mean, we had hundreds and hundreds of farmers come to them every year. And the sites that we set up Obviously with the BCG were all spray trials and and you know, there were amazing days in, in those early days when farmers were really starting to change from cultivation practices to no till, which goes together with you still have to control your weeds and you're not doing it mechanically, you're doing it chemically. And and a lot of but even in those early days we already were talking about occupational health and safety in relation to you know, how do you actually manage that increase in herbicide use and make sure that it's done under safe practices because you don't want to you don't want to get into issues where either there is residues in the soil or other things actually happening in relation to using those herbicides hmm.
0: What other, I guess, issues have have popped up and and become pretty pronounced over your career as well?
1: Well, the, the other one is, is, um, nitrogen management. So that's nitrogen as a, as a fertilizer and farmers in the past often grew a lot of pastures and they were legume based pastures. So the legumes fix atmospheric nitrogen, put it into the soil, which then can be used by the crop. But towards the end of the nineties, farmers started, well, the no-till farmers started increasing their rotations, we call them in the industry. So they're growing more and more crop and less pasture. Mm -hmm. And so nitrogen fertilizers were becoming big issues in relation to optimizing crop production and, and that is really an important thing because at that time we became familiar with a program developed by the CSIRO which was, it's it's a crop modeling program called APSIM. And we were working with CSIRO during that time in developing practices where you optimize the use of water because water is the limiting factor throughout most of the Wimmera and the Mallee Mm-hmm. You know, some years it's too dry and some years it's too wet. But water is really the driving force and how to optimize your production systems by utilizing as much water as you could. So that became a big focus of the work that we were doing. And at the same time, there were researchers also developing other tools such as water use efficiency which is a measure of how much grain you can produce per millimetre of, of rainfall. And once you have those targets set up, then you can really think about the production systems that can optimise the chance of getting to that target. And I mean that was probably the biggest change in crop production in the 90s and early 2000s, when farmers really became aware of how much yields they were losing in inverted promise because they weren't optimizing their use of the water that was either already stored in the soil or fell as rainfall. Yeah, interesting. It's funny, like the, the
0: issue is just like, they kind of go in cycles, don't they? There's the, the trends that come with them.
1: Yeah, that's right. And well, during the early days, there was a lot of dry land salinity because the the sort of the, towards the latter part of the 1990s, they were quite wet and there was a lot of dryland salinity and then the climate came quite a bit drier and dryland salinity is not such a big issue now, but certainly utilizing as much water as you can in terms of crop production is still the holy grail for nearly all farmers that, grow crops, wherever you are in Australia, really.
0: Mm. What
1: what has it taught you about, I guess,
0: the the integration and relationship between the science, research, academia, but also, I guess, the practical problem-solving ability of farmers where they can keep, but like these problems keep popping up, but they keep overcoming them?
1: Yeah, well, well and, and that's right. You know, we, we think that in the research fraternity that we've done a great job in developing new practices, but we should never forget that there are really innovative farmers out there who are either fully aware of the new science or they are already developing that themselves on their own farms. I mean, and and to find the synergy between the practice of farming and the science of farming That is really the holy grail where you can start seeing the big improvements that are being made in crop production. But that also includes, include, has to include the machinery. The machinery that we now have, well, obviously it's bigger, much, much bigger, but it's also a lot better. Mm. So in terms of no-till farming, the machinery is advanced hugely compared with say the early nineties when farmers were doing it themselves. And I even think just the, the
0: acceleration, I guess, of, of uptake of precision agriculture as well, like if I think the first farm that I worked on in 2011 in Southern New South Wales, we weren't using GPS on really anything. We got GPS on the sprayer and that was kind of a big advancement, but then fast forward to 2015, I was working on a, on a grain property in Canada and we were using variable rate fertiliser and seeding applications across that whole country. Like it's amazing how quickly. Yeah. innovation moves.
1: Yeah, and that and that is, has been the biggest change in crop production over the last 20 years, for sure. It's that adoption of, of new technology, but all together with the understanding of how things are working as well. I mean, it's, it's a synergy between science and practice that has been phenomenal in agriculture and it's worked extremely well. Hmm.
0: I've got one other question about your business and, and the consulting side of things, you mentioned your wife Anne before, so what was the, the, I guess, the strength that each of you brought and how did you guys structure your business up so that you didn't cross over and like, and keep that work life relationship going?
1: <laughs> well, it was very straightforward. So, Anne is extremely practical. practical, she was born on the farm and I'm extremely unpractical <laughs> and I, but I'm good at talking about it. So the synergy was pretty amazing because, and in the early days, especially did a lot of the, the trial work, whereas I talked about the trial work. <laughs> that was a very happy medium. So she, she was happy that, not to be the one talking. Mm. And, but never forgetting that at the same time, the Birch of Cropping Group was there attracting hundreds and hundreds of farmers to the field days. And it didn't take long for that to really, well, look at the Birch of Cropping Group now. I think they're employing more than 20 people and got fantastic facilities and lots of good agronomists working for them, with them, and still... Many, many farmers, the, the last, um, Cropping Group update in February this year, they had well over a hundred farmers come to the, to the meeting. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's
0: hugely successful, isn't it?
1: Hmm. Now you've had a little bit to do with the
0: GRDC and the part I want to chat about, I'm sure there's lots of things we could talk about, but this in 2020, a year, which I think many will remember was one that was very significant for the world of lockdowns and everything else, but you guys won the GRDC Excellence Award and it allowed you, or gave you access to travel the world. Although the world
1: was shut down at this stage. What, what, what was the award and what were you hoping to look at through it? So, well, the award is called the Excellence Award and, and to be honest, when I was awarded it, I thought, oh, this is such a fantastic opportunity and, and this is wonderful that I got this award, but I actually didn't really know that it came together with a bursary, a travel bursary. Yep. <laughs> I found it out on the same day, obviously, but when I was given the award, I didn't really know that. And so that was in 2020, like you said, just before COVID hit. So already, Anne and I decided on the topic that we would choose because, you know, the, the amount of herbicides being used it is increasing all the time and and other chemicals in farming and especially there was a lot of pressure already on glyphosate not necessarily in australia glyphosate is the old roundup product and so we decided that we would do the make for the travel award that we would visit farmers and agronomists and researchers in different parts of the world and see how they are dealing with the issue of if and when glyphosate is going to be banned and so that became the focus for the travel award and and that's what we actually ended up doing so obviously not in 2020 we in 21 we went to Europe And then last year we went to Canada and Argentina. So I'm going to ask you a
0: very stupid question and forgive me for asking it, Haram, but why did you need to travel the world to look at this?
1: Um, well, you could do it by phone, but when you're sitting down with a group of French farmers and luckily for us, I mean, I can speak a little bit of French because of, well, I mean of the past, I guess, but nothing to have a discussion on the technical subject, I mean, nowhere near that. But uh, for us, luckily, a lot of the French young French farmers speak really good English, and there is only one way, really, to understand farming practices, how farmers feel about changing in government direction or in in limitations on what they can do is to be with them i mean you can't do that over the phone or over zoom and but sitting down with them walking out in the fields looking at their crops discussing their wheat problems and management issues that they have in relation to controlling weeds or other pests or whatever issue they have on the farm you can only do that in person you can't do that in zoom and it's hard enough to do these kind of things when there's only two people but just imagine if there were 10 farmers sitting there on the other side and half the time they're speaking in french amongst each other you wouldn't have a clue what's going on yeah absolutely not matt and so so you mentioned
0: um it was really important to get on the ground to understand how they're feeling so let's chat about the europeans first but how are they feeling about the changing landscape? And I guess that the influence that society is having on agriculture and especially around the influence around, um, ag chemicals.
1: Yeah. So the, there's, there's really two sides to that. So, and the farmers realise this too, they know that public perception is changing, but at the same time, they also know that a very large part of their income comes from EU subsidies. So, and already they're doing many things on their farms to get those subsidies. Well, they all get subsidies, but to get additional subsidies. So if you're growing cover crops, so that's in between two crops, you get an additional subsidy. So all farmers in the north of France grow, well, nearly all farmers grow cover crops. And which is good for the soil, And it looks beautiful. And in France, well, in most of Europe, a lot of European people go into the countryside during the holidays. And the holidays are the same time that the countryside looks the most beautiful, like in August and September. Mm -hmm. And And people like seeing all those flowers out in the field and things like that. So the farmers get subsidies for maintaining that and doing that. So they already know that you know, a big part of their income is from the subsidies, so they are more accepting of government regulations than we are, or Argentinian or Canadian farmers are, because it's it's not part of our farming system, and hence it would be very foreign for us to have the government saying you can do this, you can't do that kind of thing. And no-till farming wasn't an imperative set by the government. It was farmers taking it up because they wanted to do better and they wanted to reduce soil erosion and they wanted to increase their crop production systems. It wasn't imposed on them. It's really interesting, isn't it, that it's nearly the... Well, as you're saying,
0: it's kind of like a tourism levy as such, isn't it, that they're in essence getting?
1: Well, in, in some ways, I mean... I think, well, we have gotta be a little bit careful with that because I think, well, obviously, French farmers, German farmers, English farmers, I mean, they're all very dedicated to their job and they love growing good crops. I mean, that's what farmers, well, cropping farmers at least, that we know here in Australia or wherever they're living, that's what they want to do. And, but at the same time, the subsidy system does distort the view of agriculture in Europe because it's so different to us here, where farmers, I mean, they get assistance in in some things like drought assistance, things like that, but it's not a subsidy system like they have in Europe. Mm. It is different, so and that makes already a lot of farm chemicals are being banned in Europe, and farmers. They may not like it, but they do accept it because of the of the whole subsidy system. So it's even though it's imposed on them, it is something that they work with and work through to keep maintaining a high production system. And and what about right across the other side of the world
0: for the Canadians in North America and and the Argentinians down in the south? Well, so
1: that's much more similar to us even though there are also restrictions being imposed in... Well, for example, in Argentina, one of the things that's starting to happen is that there is a pretty high awareness that in the community about farming and farmers using farm chemicals. And quite a few medium-sized Argentinian towns, and one of them we went to, which is called Pergamino. And I think there's something like 80,000 people live in that country town. So it's not not small, but it's not huge. Mm -hmm. And they've drawn a boundary around their town, a kilometer wide from the town boundary, where there's absolutely no agri-chemicals allowed to be used, including synthetic fertilizer. So, you can't put out urea or anything like that, and definitely no spraying. Now that I was really well, we were really surprised about that because that shows that the community is very concerned about agri-chemical use, because otherwise those towns wouldn't impose those kind of restrictions, because obviously the farmers are against that, because if you farm, in that zone you don't get any compensation whereas a european farmer would get extra subsidies if that happened there but in argentina those farmers become organic farmers and that's a big impost on the farm business and but it shows that there is community concern about the use of agrochemicals and in and for example, in Canada, they are also becoming more aware of this type of issues. So in Canada, they, well, their harvest starts when winter starts or their harvest goes into the winter. And if they can't get their harvest off and it starts snowing, then they can't get it off because the crop is underneath the snow. Mm-hmm. So they use um, Roundup or Glyphosate as a desiccant, so to dry down the crop. And and they are and there is public concern about that because you know you're spraying a crop that is going to be harvested, and with a with an agri chemical. But, but that's also registered in Australia. So there are. Yeah, you know, there's different movements around the world that's there's different practices and people overalls, so our society is changing to the extent that we have. Most people in capital cities or in the major cities don't have contact with farmers anymore, which was very different when, when I was young, because most kids at school had uncles or aunties or somebody who lived on the farm and if there was a concern you can ring up your family member and say you yeah, know what's going on here but that, that doesn't happen anymore so the the social environment is now very different and there is a growing concern around the world in the use of agrochemicals and and that's something we have to realize and we have to, and I think most farmers in Australia do realize that but and we should be prepared for arguing the case and having really good data to support the case where we're saying, look, the use of agrichemicals is important because, well, for two reasons. Probably most importantly, that we're feeding 8 billion people and growing every day. And to do that organically or without agrichemicals, I think would be... Well, I think what happened in Sri Lanka... It's clear that it's impossible. I mean, you can, you can work towards that, but you can't do it from tomorrow. Mm. And so that's a really important thing that we have to remember that, you know, it's going to be difficult for the world to be totally chemical-free in agriculture without really good planning and without really good data on how that is going to work, because it's it's a hard thing to do. and. A few months ago, with the grandkids, we took them to Vietnam, and I learned there that Vietnam has banned the use of glyphosate. And you go, "What's that about? You know, is that out of have they banned other chemicals or things like that?" And so it is. It is a growing movement around the world that people are becoming concerned about agrochemical use, and I think it's. It's an onus on us to really be prepared for that and having the information and the data ready so that when the argument really becomes strong and people start talking about it politically, that we have the information that can help maintain as as much as possible our current farming systems because we know that environmentally they're the best thing. The worst thing that could happen in Australia is we have to go back to the plough to control weeds, and if we do that, we go back to the soil erosion days because there's no alternative. Mm. No-till farming has been a a fantastic thing for Australian farms, rain farms. I think you probably touched on. I was going to ask you what makes you cautious,
0: but then optimistic as part of that. But maybe so off the back of all all the learnings and, and people you met. Kind of what are the next steps for you? And I guess, yeah, from here,
1: like where to next? Okay. So, well, I've written a report to the Grain Research Development Corporation, so that that's the funding agency for this award. And I'm now into my seventies. So it is really up to the next generation to, to work in this particular area and determine you know what is going to happen what's the future going to look like should we be doing trial work in understanding what it would be like to have different farming systems without the use of, of fertilizers or without the use of angry chemicals and how we would how would we manage such a thing so that we actually have the information available to us so when Either our exports are starting to be affected because we got glyphosate residues in the grain that we're selling, or there's internal Australian public starts turning against the use of of agri chemicals. So we've got to be prepared, and to be prepared, you've got to make a plan, and Mm -hmm. and that's up to well, ultimately. The politicians will make those decisions, but organizations like the Grain Research Development Corporation, which all farmers, all grain farmers in Australia contribute in terms of their total production to the GRDC to do the research work, and it's up to those organizations to make sure that they are, that we are ready with the information required. I I just haven't thought just five simple more questions
0: to ask you. And and these ones are actually a bit of fun. And so I'm interested to see what your responses are as part of them. It, it's the questions which we're asking everyone who's part of this series. So if you're feeling up to it, Haram, I might jump in. How are you feeling?
1: Oh, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> oh.
0: What's your favorite grain-based
1: dish? Well, it would have to be bread. Um. I was born in Holland, so I was raised on bread. <laughs> and I use, we grind out a lot of our own wheat. So one of the farms that I work on, I get a, a bag of wheat from, from him. And we grind it up at home and we make our own own little bread. So that would be my favorite. But I also like a lot of the, the new newer dishes with grains in them, especially, you know, the Vietnamese dishes that use a lot of different types of grain and things, and so that, that's and lentils. And so there's a lot of different grains that are really enjoyable to eat. Well, that makes it difficult. So let's just say we're putting on a
0: spread. We've, we've obviously got your bread and then we've got a, a mix of Vietnamese dishes and a few lentil dishes as well. Who would be three people that you'd like to invite over to eat this dish?
1: Oh um well one would be definitely Ian and Ann McClellan, so Bertram Farmers and also John and Robin Ferrier, because those four people I've worked with for a long, long time. And in relation to development and agriculture and everything else. And and they were they the two that really initiated the Birchip Cropping Group, which I still think is a, is a fantastic organisation. And the other people would be, to get a bit of argument and discussion going, Peter and Ann Carberry. Peter now, he used to work with CSIRO, and then he worked in, um, In India for ICRISAT, he was the director general there for a while and now he's the head of the research program in GRDC and he's always up to a good argument. So I think it'd be a very interesting discussion with a few bottles of wine. Sounds like a good dinner party. (laughs) The next question is, what was your first ever job? Um, doing a paper round while I was at school when <laughs> I was 14 <sporting. laughs> Is that a, is that regarded as a job that <laughs> getting up at 5am and you're delivering newspapers around the event? Which obviously people don't do anymore. People still get newspapers delivered? I don't anyway, you know. Anyway, not, not by young kids on their bicycle with all the newspapers in the, the bag. <laughs> well, I used to do one as well and i tell you because you had to apply for areas.
0: The area I lived in driving in Sydney, couldn't have been any hillier if I had tried. So what I did, I managed to con mum into driving me around and I stood out of the sunroof and threw
1: them all out. <laughs> well, I can assure you, my mum and dad would never have done that. That's was me time. having to get up at five o'clock and doing it. Up <laughs> and doing it. But that was my first job ever. Yeah. There you go. What's something that you have still got on your bucket list? Um. Well, there are still many, well, one thing I would, well, two things really, I would like to see in terms of this, the whole work in relation to agri-chemicals, that we actually have a program in Australia that really looks at the impact of the chemicals we're using on soil and how much is how much is left in the soil, what impact it has on the soil microbiology and also in relation to what's actually in the grain that we export. And because I think if we are prepared for the inevitable, and to me, it is inevitable that there's going to be pressure on farmers in Australia in terms of chemical use. I mean, it's not going to go away around the world. And we are a huge exporting nation, so we should be aware of that. So I'm really hoping that 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 is actually, is going to occur. Yeah. I've got
0: another question. This is not, so I'm taking my five questions to six. Another question I want to ask you, do you ever think
1: you'll fully retire? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a very common topic around our dinner table. (laughs) It's Anne actually sent it to me to ask you. No. (laughs) Um, It is, well, I think I would find it, very, because I don't really know what retire means. I'd have to find something really good to do. I mean, I like gardening, but there's, there's only, I, there's only some much gardening that I can do before I go, I get edgy and my brain is not working and I need to do something. Yeah. And so, but I mean, I'm sure that as we all get older, I mean, there are many people that I know who are older than I am, and they, they keep an active interest. You know, one of my greatest mentors in agriculture was a guy called Neil Clark. And unfortunately, Neil died last week. Maybe that's why I'm thinking of him. But he was in his eighties and he, his mind was, was still really active. He was of wanted to know what farmers were doing and everything else. So, yeah, you know, and maybe. That's enough to keep to contact with the farming community, rather than trying to run research programs. Because we've got so many good young researchers and agronomists out there who are doing who are much more up to date than I am currently with all the farm chemicals that are being used and practices and everything else. So, not, yeah, and I think Australian agriculture is actually in really good hands. The GRDC do a fantastic job on it. We're the envy of the whole world of having that organisation. Nobody else has got close to what we have with the Grain Research Development Corporation. And it is an amazing opportunity where the, all farmers in Australia contribute to this pool of money for agricultural research, extension and adoption. And it's an amazing thing. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I've, I'm fascinated by people and their stories. And I think for you of of what you've done it's absolutely incredible and thank you for sharing your story with us thanks for joining us for the GRDC in conversation podcast this series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode